are live. We're live. Hello. Well, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Sober Grind podcast and live stream yes. from Beginnings Treatment Centers. My name is Pej. This is My Austin. My name is Austin. And this is... I'm Mandy. That's Mandy. Our very special guest. Our very mm-hmm. special guest today. And we have a very special show today. Uh, we are going to be talking about relapse and why there's such a high rate of relapse for people that go through treatment. Mm. Afterwards. Yes. Yes. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. And it happens, you know. Mm-hmm. It's the reality of it. Yeah. So, Mandy, do you want to talk, introduce yourself and talk a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Mandy Mejiaz. I've been working in the substance abuse industry for just over 18 months. I'm an admissions counselor, so I work hands-on with um, the beginning of, you know, the treatment process, and I usually see everything to completion and beyond. I, I communicate a lot with alumni, so I do have a lot of uh, experience with seeing what happens after treatment. That's awesome. We're so happy to have you today. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So, Pesh, do you want to just jump right in? Sure. So what, what, are your, what are some of your initial thoughts and opinions about why people tend to, to relapse after treatment? Well, you know, that's a really good question. I, I, okay, so Manny was talking about alumni. So mm. often a lot of people that go through treatment, they're, you know, let, let me start off by this. So sometimes people get intervened on and they have to go to treatment, right? Mm. And depending on what's going on in their lifestyle, where they're living, um, what's happening with them, that, that it's come down to somebody having to come and, and intervene and talk to them and try to convince them that they need to have a different way of life and, and mm. perhaps it's time to go get treated for that. Um, the family's on board. You know, usually mm-hmm. the family should be on board, let's hope. And uh, once they make their way in, they think that a lot of the family members think, okay, good, our kid is good. He's mm-hmm. fine, right? And really, that's just the, the start of it all. Mm-hmm. So the kid goes into treatment and he gets to uh, obviously sometimes detox at first. And then the, the, the clouds start clearing in their head and they, they start to like become a part of something. They, they start to communicate with other people that are new in in treatment as well and then they go to their groups and they go into their individual therapy sessions and they go on outings and they realize that there's a lot more to life than the way they've been living yeah now often people have a turning point and sometimes they don't have a turning point there's a lot of people that are still um, contemplating they're still not ready um, their family interaction is still not all there you know they mm-hmm. may they may still be going through some of the same uh, issues that they were before they started using, which probably like yeah, led them to, to using. Yeah, that, fam- that family dynamic is so family key. dynamic. It's, has it's to change. Truly, as well. sometimes it's the family that's worse than the <clears throat> addict alcoholic. You know, that, that goes yeah. into treatment, and um, so you know these people they, they go into treatment and um, they may do family work, they may do mm. their individual therapy, they may work through the deep rooted uh, things that they were dealing with before. Um, but you know, if they don't really have a solid uh, solid foundation in recovery um you know they can go they can be there for 30 60 90 days sometimes 120 days but Mm. if they don't have a solid foundation you know they're reintegrated back into the world and sometimes if they go back to their own homes Mm -hmm. they go right back into the lion's den and and that's you know it could be a place where they were using before Mm -hmm. they may not feel connected when they're in recovery to the recovery community that's around them Mm -hmm. or the meetings that they go to and all that so what happens is they go back and they do what they know best and that is to hang out with the old friends or or they depend on their parents the same sometimes the same parents that are just as sick as them or 
sicker, they depend on them financially, so they go right back into that lifestyle. And you know, before you know it, if they don't have a, a so, strong, solid foundation, they find themselves loaded again. And it happens. It's the reality of it. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Let's um, let's say uh, hi to a couple people here. Uh, we we'll get some questions in here. So John says, "I'm still stuck in Patterson, New Jersey." Whoop! Where'd you go, John? Uh, but I'll have a year at the end of this month. Awesome. That's awesome. Nice Congratulations, job, John. John. Julia says, yay, Mandy. <laughs> Hi, Jules. <laughs> Thank you all for uh, joining us. If you have any comments, you want to say what's up, uh, if you have any questions about this topic, thoughts, if you want to shout out a friend or shout out yourself, do that in the comments. It's awesome. Uh, share this video if you want to spread the message spread the positive message and share also love, guys yes share the love and please check out our podcast uh it's called sober grind uh the links to view it on itunes or google play or whatever your favorite platform is is uh in the description of this video so check that out subscribe leave a review we'd love to hear your thoughts oh we got another comment. john why did you change your name i mean <laughs> mike oh <laughs> is that mike? He, he wanted to be anonymous for this show. Oh, totally okay. understandable. Ah, okay. So, Mandy, do you have any do you have any opinions? Oh, or in your John, why did you change your why name? The relapse rate is so high after treatment. Sure. Um, Pesh brings up a really good point. When when the clouds clear, and we have to deal with real life, it's very jarring. You know, mm, um, yeah. it's really hard to to reacclimate to real life when we didn't have real life before, mm -hmm. and then we kind of had this this uh, kind of little treatment bubble surrounding mm -hmm. us and now we're going back into the real world where we have to pay bills and we have to get a job and we have to deal with the family dynamics that we didn't maybe get to process fully in treatment you know it's a beginning of the process and um, so I think a lot of the the relapse rate post treatment has to do with kind of a, a loss of autonomy mm. during the treatment process as well as you know you're not fully set. You're never going to be fully set. It's your turn to like do the things. And if you didn't learn how to do all the things in treatment, you're, you're prone to, to going back and reverting to old behaviors, right? It's yeah. like, um, what are some of those key habits you think that you should develop or, or try to develop to help prevent a relapse? Um, I, a huge amount of willingness to, yeah. to open yourself to the process. A lot of people go into treatment and they say, you know, uh, 10 out of 10, uh, that's my willingness to go and complete a treatment program. But what they're looking at there is completing a treatment program. Mm. Just getting to the end. Getting mm -hmm. to the end of that 30, 60, 90 days. And mm. then you're like, okay, I finished treatment. Mm -hmm. But just because you finished treatment doesn't mean you absorbed what was given to you. You sure. have to be willing and open to to accept all of that. Um, which is really hard, especially in the very beginning when you're just learning to accept a whole lot of other things and now you have to be willing to accept like advice mm -hmm. and things like that so I think willingness is is key mm. and um, once you have that laid down it only goes up from there like you you if you're open you're open to learning the coping skills you're open to hearing about um, you know ways to to heal your own trauma and mm -hmm. um, reformatting those family dynamics and things like that, setting boundaries, and that only comes if you're willing to do it. Mm -hmm. So um, with that, I think like 
that's that is 100% the key the key to a successful treatment process is the openness to to actually accept the treatment process for what it is not you know a sentence of time yeah. that you have to go through to heal yourself that's awesome we got a, yeah, a couple more okay what is your opinion on the opiate uh, the opioid epidemic in the US do you think the pharma industry does enough to help put uh, put with prevention and treatment for those suffering with addiction. Pez, do you want to tackle yeah. that one? I mean, do I? Okay, so pharma industry does enough to help put the prevention and treatment. No, the pharma industry does not uh, put enough help into the prevention mm -hmm. of it. I think the pharma industry is part of the problem, if mm -hmm. not the problem. Um, you know, we can, we can have a lot of opinions about what's going on as far as the opioid addiction. It is a total epidemic. I mean, what we're seeing more and more is a lot, a lot, a lot. The majority of the people that come to treatment is because they are addicted to opiates. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it be pills, whether it be uh, heroin, whether it be opium, whether it be um, fentanyl, they are addicted to opiates. And that is because that stuff is being pumped into our country through Big Pharma. You know, so it's, it's like a lot of kids are getting their hands on it. And when they, when they, they get their, and we talk about this often, almost every week. Um, when their grand it's on everyone's mind. Yeah, when their grandparents or their parents have it readily available, and it's inside of uh, a medicine cabinet, for example, at home, and the kid is getting their hands on that, or they're getting prescribed it for pain or something like that, and then they develop this dependency, and they they take more than they should, and then they become fully addicted. Once that runs out, where do they? Where do, what I usually see is that if they can't get the pills anymore, they go right for the heroin. You know, and that's it's 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 sad. It's sad, but it's the reality of our country. I don't think that big pharma will ever um, put anything towards it. You know, I don't think they 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 don't really it's a money want money game. Unfortunately, yeah, they don't want it. They're they're part of the problem. You know, and and um, I'll say that openly right here. Like I don't care for them. I know that um, there are medications that are necessary for people that have pain, but also I think that when it comes to to prescribing this to people, that pain management needs to be expressed to them, and they need to be taught how to effectively wean off of it rather than become totally hooked on it. And that's the problem. Mm. These types of drugs are highly addictive. Mm. Highly addictive. I mean, it's, it's, it's no joke. And the sad part of it, the, the backlash of that is that a lot of people um, become so addicted that they, they start, you know, seeking out other forms of, of opioids and they, they, they die. And that's really sad. That's the reality of it. So my opinion is that it's that other people, especially people in recovery, what we can do is raise the issue, talk to our lobbyists, talk to mm. talk to politicians, and see how how uh, awareness can be raised. And we we talk on a more national level about what can be done, and really do it, not just keep talking about it, but really do it because it's never going to get better if if nobody's not doing anything about it. Yeah, there's also online petitions like Change.org, mm -hmm. uh, where anyone can create a uh, an online petition and, and spread that message and then take that to the next step and start creating live events and talking about it and things like that. Yep. Um, Want to check with Franz, any questions on the beginnings page or comments? Uh, we got a comment saying that we look like we're in space. No, I like, I like We are in space. I like it when we're in space. Over there we are. So, Pej, um, Mandy touched upon this a little bit. So, what are your opinions on um, uh, best things that both the individual and maybe the family can do to help prevent a relapse? Okay, so this is uh, this, this is, is two part. This is a long big deal. The, yeah. the, the big a big deal to me is this: is that 
we can never change the mentality of these families until they become coachable and teachable. So yeah. I'm just going to give a, a couple of examples. Like right now, I'm in the middle of doing some interventions, right? And um, the people that have taken me on to become the interventionist for their kids, one's a female, one's a male. Um, actually, two or two, it's three interventions, two males, one female. Um, I'm sitting here trying to, trying to tailor the proper plan for them and put them into the proper facility for their addictions and their mental health. Mm -hmm. Now, it seems that the parents are somewhat on board. Obviously, their par the parents don't want to see the kids go homeless. They mm -hmm. think that they're going to die out there in the streets, right? Meanwhile, they're already dying in their own homes from addiction, right? So it's, it may be a slow process, and, but who knows? I mean, any day they could come home and that kid could be overdosed and dead. So that's the reality of it. Now, my whole goal is to get that kid in the treatment, but also to have the family on board and being involved in that child in their child's treatment plan, right? <clears throat> when it comes to manipulating, addicts and alcoholics are the master manipulators. They will put, they will they know exactly what to do. They will try to they'll try to maneuver in different directions and get exactly what they can out of their parents. And that means let me get the car, let me get the house, let me get the money, let me get, you know, this, that, and the other. You don't give me enough. You don't it's all entitlement, right? The, the parents need to understand that their kids don't deserve anything. They've already gotten everything that they've ever wanted, and for the, the majority of them, right? Have, have gotten everything that they wanted, and they've taken advantage of that stuff. The only way that I think a person can really get true, solid recovery is if they become desperate. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the parents need to give them enough space to be able to get to that position of desperation to move forward. And that means they got to stop enabling them. Unfortunately, a lot of parents still enable their kids. That is usually a major factor. The reason that a lot of the people that come out of treatment is that their parents think, oh, my kid's well now. He went to treatment. Treatment's not going to keep your kid sober. No, it's not. They, you, they have to be able to still be on board and regain their parents' trust. And their parents shouldn't just hand out you know, all of these things to them. That person should become self-sufficient. Once they come out of mm -hmm. treatment, they need to... The best thing for them is to, for them to be able to stand on their own two feet. A lot of parents often stunt their child's growth, both in emotional sobriety and physical sobriety, because they, they continually keep on giving them, giving them, giving them a bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. And kids, they come out and they think, well, you know, I'm on easy street. Yeah. My, my dad's paying for my apartment. Bad idea. Mm -hmm. Mom gave me the car back. Bad idea. It was that same car that they See, were that using in the first place again. to go and obtain drugs, right? Right. You don't just hand them that stuff back. They don't deserve it. If you've been paying for it, it's not theirs. It's yours. So mm -hmm. I think um, really the best thing for when people get out of treatment is they should go to sober living. Mm. Truly. like, And what they call it sober living for a reason because you're supposed to stay sober, mm -hmm. right? So... I often will, when I'm doing an intervention, I'll help somebody get into treatment. But on the back end of that, I like to work with the families. And, you, you know, they'll take me on to be like a sober coach or recovery coach or even a life coach. Because a lot of these kids don't have life skills. But I like to help show them how to progress and move on and what an aftercare plan looks like. Mm -hmm. That means like you get into sober living. But also the most important thing is that you have solid recovery. Yeah. So you're going to your meetings, so you have your sponsor, you have your recovery community, and you're connected to them. And when, whenever somebody strengthens all of those things, they have a better chance at long-term sobriety. God, that That's, coffee is good. <laughs> <laughs> and it's free.
Uh, just want to take a moment here and talk to the audience. You guys are doing, Mark says you, we're doing great. Keep up the good work. The show is so helpful. Thank, Thank you. you, Mark. Thanks, That's guys. why we do what we do. <laughs> uh, I just want to take the time to talk to everyone. Uh, if you're just joining us or if you've been in here for maybe a minute uh, and don't know what we're talking about, uh, so today we're talking about why the relapse rate is so high after you go through treatment and what you can do to kind of help prevent that a little bit. So if this hits home, if this is intriguing to you or someone you know or it's super helpful, uh, it would be helpful to us if you could maybe tag a friend or share this video or even check out our podcast. So we're live streaming uh, the Sober Grind podcast. The links to check it out are in the description of this video. This is actually episode number 14, so there's a lot of awesome wow. content on there. Yeah. We've been busy weekly. Look, he, and John look. Smith, a.k.a. Mike, shh, nobody knows that. But anyway, he said, here in New Jersey, dope is 80% fentanyl. Ugh. And that's insane. The, that's the I believe it. I mean, yeah, that, that's I'm from Jersey, happening. too. But you know what? Even, even if they took all the fentanyl away um, in, in a couple of years, it's we'll see something, something new coming. Yeah. You know, a couple of years ago, it was alligator. Have you heard, heard of that? The you crocodile stuff? Crocodile, right? Alligator, yeah. crocodile. Oh, that's nasty. Okay. It's like... Thing? It's like... <laughs> <laughs> To well, me, a similar, crocodile yeah. is an alligator. It's that, that, that <laughs> Russian drug that like, <laughs> melts, yeah. melts your skin. It totally and melts your skin. And, you know, bath salts. And, and, oh, bath salts just and now Tide Pods, possibly. <laughs> Whatever keeps oh, I think that's a hands. different thing. but. <laughs> 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 um, so, yeah, keep uh, leaving your questions, leaving your comments if you have anything. Uh, we're just going to keep going for a little bit. Uh, I know you both have a experience with, with interventions. Um, so I'd love to kind of tie into that a little bit. Maybe we can start with Mandy. What's your um, experiences with, with interventions and opinions? And Sure. I, I mean, definitely an intervention and a client that needs to be intervened on is going to be vastly different, mm. right, than somebody that comes in out of utter desperation, off yeah. the streets. So um, you're going to see a lot less willingness to comply mm -hmm. to a treatment program. Um, you know, you're going to get... A lot of headbutting, little backlash, and it's uh, you're just it's going to be a different mm -hmm. approach to how you you gear the treatment process. Um, generally speaking, like I said, I, I think that willingness to come in and complete a program is is so important. I personally don't have experience seeing what happens. After an intervened client leaves a treatment program, maybe Pej can speak more on that. Um, but I, I definitely know firsthand seeing the actual process pan out is a lot more mm -hmm. trying and a little more, you know, got to put in a little more effort on the clinical end mm -hmm. um, with clients like that. So, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, you want to jump in there and maybe if is there any correlation between the the individual that comes in on their own for treatment uh, versus someone that has to be intervened on uh, with a relapse rate? I mean, it, it varies. It's it, it can be different in many different cases. There's yeah. there's a lot of kids that, that this is what I often hear kids that they'll, they'll come to treatment. They're like, I put myself in here. <laughs> I am the one that can't. No, man. You had nothing going for you, and you were basically dying on the street, and you depended on somebody. So you agreed to going to treatment because that was your option, right? Mm -hmm. And that sometimes that can be an, they can be intervened from their family. Some, mm -hmm. A lot of families just do a family intervention. Yeah. Often families feel like they can't do enough, so they hire somebody to come and do an actual intervention, like an interventionist that's experienced mm -hmm. and has you know that's a certified interventionist. Um, 
I've seen some great success stories, even in recent times. I've seen a, a young lady who has been in and out of treatment a lot of times. She's been in and out of recovery a lot of times, and she, she knows recovery. But um, she was intervened on properly. The family was all on board because they've, they basically learned from their past mistakes. Mm -hmm. And they, they did exactly opposite of everything they did before. Once she was placed in treatment, uh, the interventionist kept tabs on her. I kept tabs on her too because I work under that interventionist, and she's almost at ninety some odd days sober. And she's awesome. like, she's doing this thing, and she's now yeah. she's decided that she wants to stay in California mm -hmm. because her whole sober community is out here. She loves the it's meetings, wonderful. and she's becoming a part of this thing. That's what can happen. So now she's not dying, right? Yeah. Now, now she she's everything has worked in order because the interventionist set out a plan. The plan was followed by the family. The fa plan was followed by the person that was being intervened on. And, you know, she's now a miracle in the progress, in, in the world. I love it. Incredible. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's jump into the importance of, um, of sober living a little bit. You, you touched upon this earlier. Uh, mm -hmm. I'd love to get um, uh, your opinions on, on expanding on that a little bit and, and why uh, a sober living setting can uh, help prevent a relapse. Okay, so here, here's the thing. Like, I've... I'm very familiar with sober livings. I used to run sober livings. I used mm. to have sober livings, and I used to be a program director and even a house manager in sober livings. And um, sober livings are a dime a dozen. There's a ton of them out there, right? Mm -hmm. Especially in California, it's like everybody's it's going the mecca out. out here. It's the major mecca. Everybody's going out and renting a house and yeah, sure. buying a bunch of beds from uh, Best Buy and sticking them in there and calling yeah. it a sober living. Is that really an effective sober living? I, I feel there's a big difference between uh, a structured sober living that really provides uh, the space for somebody to, to get long-term sobriety and just a place where people go and exist in sobriety. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, the, the families think that, oh, well, we put them in sober living and they know nothing about their kid. And some of the parents actually pay for their sober living, which mm -hmm. I think is all kinds of wrong. Mm -hmm. I think that um, the best thing to do is to seek out, if you ever need help with sober livings in Southern California, whether it be in LA or Orange County, Call me. I'll, I'll, I can find you the good places. I know what I think. Um, the places that are actually doing uh, good work. And, and I don't mean, you know, a lot of them, it's not about the amenities. It's about the structure. It's about mm. the environment. It's about, um, there are some sober livings that they require you to not be in the house during the day. That oh, wow. you either be on job search, but from like 9 a.m. in the morning till 3 p.m., nobody should be sitting at home just relaxing. Because what's the difference between them sitting at home watching TV and chilling exactly, out and yeah. it was when they were at their parents' house, right? So, uh, of course, like if somebody has an actual job, let's say they have a night job and then they're home, fine. There's exceptions that can be made. But it's about structure. You mm -hmm. know, for one, chores of, of, of great importance. Like I walk into some sober livings and I'm just like, this place is a pigsty, right? What I was raised on and, and the places that I've had, um, you, you do chores in the morning, the morning meditation where everybody it's togetherness where everyone's together as a whole where there's a unit of guys that are making uh, breakfast together where everybody's doing step work for a certain part, part of the day I mean it is a sober living we're trying to stay sober so what does it take to be a sober member of sobriety right yeah. or that community um, I've also ran a house before where I didn't get to enforce rules it was actually attached to another treatment center and um, I wasn't allowed to do in that house what I wanted to do and I remember um, in two years time and it was a beautiful house it was in Newport Beach like right on the beach I would have never been able to afford this two million dollar house but I never had to pay for anything one day passion. I just got to live there right but <laughs> I watched 200 guys come through that house in a two year span wow. only three stayed sober only wow. three so 
And, and right now I've seen two other it's ones hard. that have kept trying to come back and they keep yeah. on trying. But the point is, is that it wasn't a totally, um, it wasn't like a, a structured environment to where people actually got to get their lives right. I did the best I could. Yeah. I enforced the rules. We did this double scrub and all that. But, you know, and it's also a good place. You, you want a sober living where they're testing you. Mm-hmm. Where they where they are doing the breathalyzer, where they yeah. where they you know holding Absolutely. you accountable, yeah. not just when you when you appear to be loaded, but mm-hmm. like you know randoms. Like mm-hmm. you never know when some addict or alcoholic gets their hand on some drugs, and if they're hiding that stuff in your sober living, they're going to pollute the environment. They're a cancer in your sober living, mm-hmm. and, and you know. But there's some good solid places where they're on top of their their people. They have actual employees working in the sober living, not just a house manager that works during the day and like is out and about you know what i mean somebody that is, is keeping a close eye on the house because after all we're, we're concerned about the safety of people that are in a sober living environment thank you for that that's a very insightful you're welcome that's awesome. a lot of experience uh franz any any additional questions over there either side i think we're good i think we hit uh, a lot of awesome stuff today audience wherever you are viewing this do you have any further questions <laughs> no. Mandy, do you have any additional thoughts or things that you'd like to touch upon? What um, you're doing? Anything? No, I mean, I think Patch hit the nail on the head uh, as far as sober livings go. You know, yeah, the importance of structure and accountability. I was in sober living for over a year when I first mm. got clean. And um, I've managed sober livings. I've, you know, I've been a client. And the most important things to me were the structure and the accountability, the uh, the necessary testing at random times, not just, you know, 8 p.m. every day I'm going to breathalyze you because that doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's, um, you know, there's so many things that can happen in the day before. And um, so, yeah, I, I totally agree with the importance of aftercare. Um, after completing a residential treatment program, going back out into the world can be scary. Let your community help you. It's important to engage in that and learn how to live life, you know, life on life's terms, but with still the accountability of your fellows is like, I think the one thing that's one of the major things that kept me sober. Love it. Awesome. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you again so much for joining us on another episode of the Soba Grinds podcast. Please subscribe, check this podcast out, search Sober Grind anywhere and you'll be able to find us. We are on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, you name it. Anywhere that you can find a podcast, check it out, subscribe, share it with a friend, leave a review. It is super helpful. Uh, If you have any questions that you'd like to ask later or you would like to be a part of this show, uh, send either Pej or myself an email at either Pej, P-E-J, at beginningstreatment.com or Austin, A-U-S-T-I-N, at beginningstreatment.com. Mandy, do you want to put in your email address for me? Sure. You can reach me at Mandy, M-A-N-D-I-M, at therapycable.com. At, oh. There's one Pesh. other thing that I wanted to talk about. Oh, oh, I'm so sorry, Pej. We have a page on Facebook oh. called Ask an Addiction Specialist. Yes. If you ever have any kind of questions, if you're an addict or an alcoholic that's not in recovery or in recovery and you have questions about anything that has to do with addiction, you can always just go to Facebook, 
add yourself. To, of course, you know we'll yep. give you, we'll give you the green light. Mm -hmm. Just type in "ask an addiction specialist." I think it's down there inside of the. Uh, it's in the description of in this video. The description video. of yep. this video, and um, and then, you know if you have a family member, somebody that's struggling, come and ask questions. We have professionals that are usually always readily available that will answer questions, and if they don't answer them right away, they will shortly after. Or people that are in recovery that are actually on the page too that might be able to help you in any possible way. That's the Ask an Addiction Specialist page. It's an amazing page. Thank you all. Thank you all. And finally, this podcast is made possible by Beginnings Treatment Center, a amazing center located in Southern California that truly cares about you and takes care of you throughout the entire recovery process. Check them out online at beginningstreatment.com or give them a call today to speak to a friendly specialist at 800-387-6907. Thank you, man. Thank you, Pesh. Thank you, Austin. Sober Grind. Sober Grind.